welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 45, recorded May 19th, 2011. Gary 7, episode number 2. Exactly. Or I guess episode number 2 of the Gary 7 series, however you want to word it. Exactly. It's another it's another story arc with Gary around. Kind of. Yeah. Sort well, of. In and out. <laughs> well, he's mysterious. So he yeah, is mysterious. He, he comes and goes as he will. Exactly. So today we're going to be reviewing two annuals. So as everybody knows, annuals are sometimes a little long. So please bear with us. We're going to be doing Star Trek, the DC Comics Volume 2, Annual Number 6, entitled Convergence Part 1, Split Infinities. And then we're going to also do Star Trek The Next Generation, Annual Number 6, entitled Convergence Part 2, Future Imperiled. So these both came out in 1995 and are... It's basically a two-parter story. It's a crossover. Yeah, so it's really nice to have the next gen and the original series crossover. Right. And these stories are pretty darn good if you uh, want my opinion. Which, you know, everybody listening to this direly wants to know what my opinion is. <laughs> Otherwise they wouldn't be listening. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'll be doing the synopsis for the Star Trek, and Ken has the honor of doing the next gen. Yes, since that may align with our two top-of-the-pinnacle favorites, maybe? Say that one more time. I like Next Gen best. Uh, You're a Deep Space Nine guy. I'm a Deep Space Nine guy. Okay. But but of of Star Trek, the original series, this is in the era that I like the best, which is probably around Star Trek, between Star Trek V and Star Trek VI. Cool. I like the uh, the movie era Trek better than the original series Trek. Yeah, they had more. You know, that, they had better writers. I, well, that's what I grew up on. I came out when those movies were were new, and so that's that's what I had more exposure to than the old show. Right. And me being older, <laughs> I was I grew up with uh, reruns of uh, the original series. So. Right. Okay. There was no such thing as movies. There was no such thing as movies. Okay, are you ready? I'm <laughs> I'm ready, sir. Let's go. All right, so Star Trek, Volume 2 from DC Comics, Annual Number 6. I don't know the month, but it was 1995 at some point. And the credits go to Howard Weinstein and Michael Jan Friedman were the plot. Howard Weinstein was the script. Ken Save was the penciler. Sam De La Rosa was the inker. Chris Elipopoulos was the letterer. Rick Taylor was the colorist. Margaret Clark, editor. And Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation, created by Gene Roddenberry. So the cover is a nice little painting here. Uh, in the foreground shows a large painting of Kirk's portrait, pretty much. Insert is a little picture of a young woman holding a cat. And in the background, we see a shadowy-looking alien with a large, like, blowhole-type thing on the top of his head. We see another picture of an angry Romulan's face and a picture of Data. And above all this, under the title card, is a profile of the Enterprise-D. So you definitely know that this is going to cross over into Next Gen due to that. So it starts off with the senior officers of the Enterprise A having a briefing where they're discussing that the Romulans are testing a new cloaking device. The Enterprise, along with Copernicus and Endeavor, will engage in some simulations of what they do know about the new cloaking device to perhaps find weaknesses. The meeting is cut short when the Enterprise is hit by a narrow-focused energy beam. The beam eventually is allowed to penetrate the shields, and Gary 7 materializes on the bridge. He informs them that he needs their help and that Mr. Spock is in grave danger. 
No sooner does he say this before another figure appears on the bridge. This mysterious form shoots and kills Gary Seven, and then hits Spock with another type of ray that places him inside of a bubble of energy. The bubble soon engulfs the alien and Spock, and they vanish. McCoy confirms that Gary Seven is indeed dead, and then Savick and Scotty start to work on analyzing the data regarding the attacking alien. When their investigation is complete, they inform Kirk that the power source that the alien was using is triolic waves. And triolic waves and triolic particles are deadly to most forms of life, so Savick concludes that the alien must be a previously unknown species. Also, there's evidence of a temporal distortion as well, so that means that time travel is indeed a possibility. Kirk and McCoy have a discussion as they contemplate Spock's fate. McCoy claims that he would know if Spock was indeed dead due to their shared experiences after the Wrath of Khan on the Genesis planet. We find Spock materializing inside of a forced field bubble on a very isolated planet. Within the bubble is himself, some boxes containing supplies, and a Romulan general. Spock recognizes him as General Tellius, who was instrumental in the Treaty of Allergon, which was centuries ago for Spock, but only two years ago for the general. So they've been pulled from different points in time. So back on the Enterprise, another two mysterious figures beam onto the ship. This is a beautiful woman who claims that she works for the Aegis, just like Gary Seven. Uh, she introduces herself as Xena, and the other figure is a cat named Nova. So just as Gary Seven had uh, Isis, Xena has Nova. The senior staff quickly meet with Xena, and she explains what she can without giving too much away of future events. She explains that there are other entities that can travel through time. And that these other creatures travel through time and prey upon humans during different times in history, usually during times of plague or epidemics. They do this so that they can feed on the neural energy of the dying humans. Or basically they're causing the deaths and then uh, somehow absorbing the neural in energy. They are eventually stopped by a Starfleet crew in the future and... Anybody reading this would know that this is in reference to the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Time's Arrow, part one and two. So Kirk obviously hasn't seen that episode, so he has to be kept in the dark. So she cannot go into too many details about the aliens or about the Starfleet crew that stopped them. But uh, all she can say is that the aliens have started to go back in time to remove key people from the timeline so that the Federation will be eliminated. Back in the bubble prison, another flash of light appears, and Captain Harriman from the Enterprise B appears. He recognizes Spock as an ambassador, but then soon realizes that this is Spock when he's still a captain. Uh, the three of them work out that they're from the different points in time, but they do not yet understand the reason why the three of them have been captured. Back on the Enterprise A, Xena gives some background on her and Gary Seven. They've worked together for years, and they butted heads quite often. And he went out to stop these time changers. That's what they're called, time changers, these aliens. Gary Seven went out on his own to stop the time changers, and then we get another flashback of how he, he died earlier in this issue. Kirk and Xena have a private conversation about trust. She expects him to trust her and do what she asks without explanation. He wants her to trust him with more information before just handing over control of the ship. Eventually, Nova meows, and everyone agrees that trust is a two-way street. Xena explains that they need to go to the Davidian system, which, again, if you'd watched Star Trek The Next Generation episode Times Arrow, you would know uh, all about the Davidian system. Back in the bubble, Spark and Harriman try to piece together what's happening without giving details that might disrupt the timelines, especially giving away too much Federation future events to the Romulan just in case everyone gets returned to their natural timeline. Now we flash to the future and we're on board the Enterprise D. 
The Enterprise-D is receiving a coded transmission from the neutral zone from a special envoy's ship. They divert their course to intercept. Once they're at the location, a Romulan scout ship decloaks and the Enterprise beams over Ambassador Cybok from Star Trek V fame. They quickly gather in 10 forward where Cybok reminds everyone how Data and Picard recently helped him on Romulus with his goal of reunification. And these are obviously alternate events from what we saw in the episode Unification. Everyone is enjoying themselves except Guinan, who feels like something is off, just as she did in yesterday's Enterprise. Just then, one of the time-changer aliens appears. It shoots Worf and kidnaps Data in the same energy bubble-type weapon that he was able to, to kidnap Spock earlier. In the aftermath, Worf is uh, able to wake up. He was only stunned. LaForge gives Picard the analysis from the attack. They detected the triolic waves, and they know that it is the Davidians. In the bubble prison, Data appears with the other three. They conclude that the Time Changers are trying to unravel the Federation Romulan treaties. Data makes note of knowing Harriman's future importance to the cause. He was important in the uh, the treaty, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Data briefly explains about the Davidians, and the four of them agree that they need to stop them. So even the Romulan, who is okay with the Federation being destroyed, is uh, willing to work with the Federation to stop them from messing with the time stream. So back on the Enterprise A, Savick and Xena discuss the merits of emotional detachment. And there's a brief flashback to Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan where we see Savick cry at Spock's funeral. We flash now to the Enterprise D where Troy and Picard are having a private dinner. Picard explained that Crusher once hypothesized that the Davidians were capable of these type of attacks on time and how Picard attempted to help them find alternative food supplies. Later, LaForge and Riker speak with Picard about the readings that they're getting and they fear that the Davidians are trying to change time. Picard is not believing them or does not want to believe them until Guinan comes in and confirms that there has indeed been some changes his mind is now set, and he orders the Enterprise to set course for the Davidian system at maximum warp. And that is to be continued. A good teeing up of the story. Yeah, it was out of the two. I think I liked this the best because it had, I think it did a good job of jumping from next gen timeline to the original series timeline. Right. Uh, where <clears throat> when we get to the second one, it seems to. The focus is probably like 99% or 95% next-gen and only a little bit of the original series. But uh, I thought this one did a good job of balancing the two. Right. And it was a good story. I mean, there were a lot of characters they brought into it you didn't necessarily expect. It's interesting seeing a second agent of the Aegis. There were a lot of interesting things going on in this one. And, uh, and, and it was so good, I was expecting so much in the second issue. Right. And, and I got a lot. I mean, the, the second issue is a very good issue. It's just that this was kind of a good build-up, and I was just, man, looking for the next one. Right. So you mentioned that there's another Aegis agent here, and she has a cat just like Gary Seven does. But yes, she does. When Gary Seven shows up and dies, he, he does not have Isis with him. That's a very good point. And I thought that was weird. I was like, uh, where's Isis? And as we'll see in the next issue, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, her cat, uh, what's the cat's name? Nexus? Nova. 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 I did not catch it, but Nova's pretty much not in the second half of the next issue. No. Nope. So the cats kind of handily disappear. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like okay, they're cool to have around, Just, you know, mix things up a little bit. What's the mystery about the cat? But then when things really get going, eh, you know, we're going to lose the cat here. And let's action adventure. Well, even in this one, the cat really only had two scenes. There was a scene where Exena and Savick are talking and, mm -hmm. and Nova seems to really like Savick. Right. And then there's the scene where Exena and Kirk are having that private conversation about trust. And the cat, you know, wins them all over with his little meow. And then they're like, you're right. Trust is a two-way street. <laughs> but aside from those then, two scenes, the cat was just scenery every once in a while. Right. And was didn't the cat come up with the game plan? 
Uh, well, yeah, I think it, at that moment when it came out like that, and then they right, went, but 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 not just everybody cooperate. But I thought the cat also came up with the plan of attack to get to the. Uh, uh, did he? To get the folks back, to get the ki- the kidnapped uh, characters back. I thought he just talked them into everybody should trust each other and and share. Everybody should just get along. That's exactly it. So uh, I, I half well. expected uh, when you know you see the cover and you see that there's a woman with a with a cat, and obviously you know that it's a Gary Seven type story. Right. I, ha- I half expected her name to be like Mary Nine or something like that. <laughs> Right. She is a senior supervisor, too, though. All right, but I never understood why Gary Seven had such a weird name. Why is his last name Seven? I don't know. It wasn't to denote rank or anything. That was literally his last name. Yeah, well, and I I think the original idea of the name might have come up before they came up with the idea he's supervisor 158 or whatever his number is. Right. Uh, because it does kind of give him a, a, a number, which is a little bit more, um, I don't know, mechanized, a little bit more, you know, non-human. I think they were just trying um, to be mysterious. So mm. there's there's a Doctor Who, so we need to have a Gary, can't have Gary what, so we'll just call him Gary <laughs> Seven. <laughs> well, okay, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm, Re- reverting back to last week's theories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought the artwork was pretty good. Uh, uh, jumping there, onto the artwork. Yeah, except was... for Savick. <laughs> eyes and Savick oh. especially has been the attack of the weird, tiny, beady eyes. I didn't notice it on anybody but her. Oh uh, well, a lot of people have really tiny, bad eyes. Uh, the the artist, the artist has a problem with eyes. But Savik was the worst. Dude, there were some shots of Savik where her face was like really tiny scrunched in comparison to the rest of her, rest of her head. head. Yep, yep, I agree. And some of her grimacing and stuff looked really bad. And actually, some of the some of the pictures of Exana or whatever his name, her name is, where she was grimacing over uh, you know footage of Gary's death, she was looking pretty scrunchy too. Uh, I didn't notice it on her, but and then there was another one where uh, where McCoy was looking really bad with really tiny eyes. But other than that, <laughs> I thought the ships looked good. I thought overall the artwork was pretty good. Yeah, I will agree with you. Um, yeah. I thought they did a good job with with Harryman. That he he looks like he did in Star Trek Generations, but maybe another ten years older, which would be about what he was. So I thought they did a good job, right? With with that too. Yeah. Keeping on the on the uh, on the art theme, I thought it was interesting. Uh, and of course, th- those of you at home that don't have the book can't see this. But at the very beginning of this issue, they showed that spy footage of that Romulan uh, ship that was uh, using the, uh, the more advanced device. cloak. Right. And it was a cool kind of bridge design. Uh, bridge as in the old uh, Klingon cruiser design that the Romulans had started using for no good reason, uh, except that production costs will get will become problematic, Right. I guess, on the original series. And the next-gen Romulan cruisers, which are really cool designs, even though they look weird. Right, they but, have that negative space in, uh, above like the top and lower portions. Uh, There's a right. big hole in it. Right, so there's kind of a... You know, two, two, two arcs that are together, and then they got the uh, almost like the face-like head in the front. But in this design, they've got the old Klingon cruiser bridge front kind of design stuck on the front of it. So I kind of liked that it was a transitional kind of ship design. Yeah, I and I'll, I'll be honest, good. I didn't notice that when you first, when when I first read it. I just thought it was a normal Romulan ship. But right. now now looking at it, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so that's cool. Somebody thought to do that. I thought it was a great shock value when, at the beginning, a great grabber, which I think I mentioned before, but when Gary was uh, was killed and then Spock whisked away. That, that was a really good grabber. Not quite at the beginning, but close, you know, beginning-ish. Right. That. Yeah, I like how they place the title cards, you know, basically what the name of the issue is and the credits. They put it right after Gary Seven gets killed. Shot, which oh, is right. 
you know, if you were watching an episode, that would be about where they would cut off to exactly. play the credits. So, yeah, I agree with you. That's pretty right. Cool. So they have yeah. So they have an extended front part that that really gets you into the story and has a good grabber at the end to keep you from uh, tuning out <laughs> or the the end of that first uh, segment right. before cut to commercial. Yep. I will say that I am I'm really disappointed that Spock uses the word practicable <laughs> on page two when he's doing the briefing thing. It's like practicable. It's like you didn't have to use the word practicable. I mean I don't I know he's Spock and he's smart and everything, but I mean come on. Couldn't you you could have said practical in the sentence, it would have worked just as fine. Yeah. It threw me off. But should it prove practicable? Exactly. <laughs> right. That's funny. And it's like it's it's like some English teacher somewhere was reading this and said, Oh, that's that's very proper English. And it's like, I don't care. It's a stupid word. It's a redundant word. Practical works fine. Anyway. It was distracting. I just read right over it. I when I was reading it it said practical. <laughs> <laughs> well there you go. There you go. Not not a big deal. It just it just it just kind of. It was like I it was I, I hit a speed bump when I was reading the thing. Practicable? Practicable? Who the hell? Who uses a word like that anyway? Hey, can I uh, mention what I think is a glaring plot hole? Oh, please do. And it becomes more evident in the second issue, but it is brought up here in that uh-huh. in the next gen timeline. Spock isn't there, and so Cybok is basically taking the role of, of Spock in, in the Romulan Federation unification efforts. Right, right. Um, but, so Spock was pulled out of, the, out of his timeline, yet he still right. kn- knew who the Romulan was, even years after what the Romulan at that moment knew. And when Harriman was pulled into the bubble, he remembered meeting Spock in what would be that Spock's future. And yet when we get to the next generation, mm. they act like, oh, we don't know who Spock is or or any accomplishments after maybe Star Trek V or whatever because he was pulled out of the time stream and sure. now we're in an alternate future. Sure. That that didn't make sense. I mean, you either yeah. everybody, I, as soon I as agree. you get pulled, everything from that point on is, is alternate or... Or it isn't. Or it isn't, right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And... When I was reading this, I didn't I didn't quite get that bit of it, but it I started having similar uh, thoughts. As these people are being plucked out, is there truly an original timeline that everybody, no matter what time period you were in, everything happened the way you originally thought before the Davidians came into the picture? Then, when the Davidians come back and start plucking people, then you know bridge you know. Uh, bridge points start forming and people they're like different versions uh, of Picard or whatever that doesn't know Spock you know it was like it just gets very confusing especially when you're plucking people out of different time frames like they did right and that's the way it should be but it it wasn't consistent because yeah Yeah, so be consistent you know whatever you know it it was only once you got to Picard's timeline that they even acknowledged that there was a difference Right. Yet, I mean, Harryman should not have known Ambassador Spock's Ambassador Spock or Captain Spock should not have known the future accomplishments of the Romulan. Um, so, I mean, it just was inconsistent. I mean, right. a- and another huge nitpick is Cybok's dead. <laughs> this story was written after Star Trek V. It's based after Star Trek V. Cybok dies in Star Trek V, so there's no way he could be alive in. Spock's time or Picard's timeline. Yeah, assuming right, assuming that Spock was plucked out, that would have changed things after the point that's uh, that he died. Right. So right, I agree. Yeah, not not before. Right. So the only argument is that maybe this story takes place before Star Trek Five, but since the ship is in pretty good working order, which you know at the beginning of Star Trek Five, it's. It's supposed to be the shakedown cruise, and it's falling apart. Uh, so this uh, this story has to happen after Star Trek V, but before Star Trek VI, or maybe even after Star Trek VI. Don't know for sure. Right. But anyways, uh, that was just those were the two huge 
plot holes I thought I was like just inconsistent. You know, right. if you're if you're gonna deal with time travel, I'll buy anything that you give me. You know, if if everybody still remembers the future accomplishments of the people, or nobody <laughs> buys it, nobody remembers because they were completely plucked out of time. Right. I can buy either one just as long as you stick with it. Yeah, be consistent. Yeah, which they didn't. So that that was the only thing that kind of pulled me out of the story. Yeah. Something in the storyline that I thought was really getting making making it good is I think when Exana says that basically these time nasties are trying to go back into time to destroy the Federation. Right. I think that really raises the stakes, don't it? I thought that's when it was really starting to get good. Yeah, and I like how the way they're going to unravel the Federation is by making the hostilities between the Romulans and the Federation enough to the point where it dissolves the Federation. I don't really understand why they go forward in time to pluck people out instead of going backwards, but but yeah, I liked it. Well, I, I thought it was a good idea. Yeah, it seemed like they went furthest back in time with Spock. Well, actually, the Romulan. The, I never quite got, got it straight exactly what time period the Romulan came from. Well, it was, but, centri- it was centuries before, so it would have been during the first Earth Romulan War, which would have been around okay, right. Archer's timeline. Wow. Okay, so it seemed like, well, except for that guy, they seem to be going forward in time. So something I didn't 100% understand is, were they, like, plucking people out, seeing what happens in the timeline, then going, hmm, wasn't enough, pluck somebody else out? Hmm, was that enough? Hmm, not enough. Pluck another person out, and they're going forward. Now, they seem to be, go- be able to go back and forth in time, the Davidians, so I guess it doesn't matter, but I just... It, no. it, it, yeah, I agree yeah. with you, because they should have... I mean, ultimately I got that they wanted to try to keep the Federation, i.e. Picard, uh, from unraveling their plans in the Times Arrow episodes. Right. So I didn't understand why they were pulling data after that episode, and then pulling other people before that episode that really didn't change what they needed it to change. Right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that didn't make sense either. Right. I mean, all they really had to do was go back and stop the Romulan Earth War. I mean, keep keep that, I mean, take that General Tillis or whatever his name was. Right. Take him out uh, before he creates that treaty, not after he creates that treaty. Because if they take him out before he creates the treaty, then Earth and Romulus would have, you know, destroyed themselves and maybe possibly, way, back, yeah, way back when, right? Possibly not create the Federation. Right. Yep. Maybe they're just really stupid and they didn't know <laughs> how to unravel time. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's like they're not experienced at this kind of stuff. I don't know. I think they might be. Anyways. I mean, obviously, uh, they go back pretty far in time if they're back in the 1800s in Time Zero. Is that what it's called? Time? Oh, Time Zero. Time Zero. Right. Yeah, I meant to watch those two episodes before we recorded this, but my copy of Time's Arrow is Region 2 Japanese DVD and my region-free DVD player. Obtained when you were living in Japan. Right. Yep. Domo Origato. Mr. Roboto. Mr. Roboto. <laughs> Domo. Okay. So should we move on to the next one? You got some more comments. Uh, the only other comment I have is during the flashback of Star Trek II, I did like seeing the Robin Curtis Savick standing there where Christy Alley Savick was actually in the movie. Oh. I thought that was just kind of cool to see the other version of, of Savick standing there with Kirk and them. Right. I just thought it was cool. Interesting point. I think that where they're talking about the Treaty of Algoron, which is Mm -hmm. what uh, Captain Harriman does in the year 2311, which I guess was very briefly... The Treaty of Algoron was mentioned in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Neutral Zone. Okay. Uh, But... A novel called uh, Serpents Among the Ruins, which is a Captain Harriman novel, mm-hmm. uh, really goes into you know his place in the in the creation of that treaty and everything, which is a really good book if anybody wants to look that one up and read it. But I just liked how this comic book didn't contradict anything that was in that book, and, and in fact, it 
confirmed it that you know Harryman really did have a, a big part in that treaty, which was you know never mentioned any actually epi- any actual episode or movie. So I thought that was a nice touch. Well, was that a uh, Michael Jan Friedman book by any chance, or? Because uh... that's the thing. Sometimes when some of these, uh, all these references are brought in play, uh, you know, either they're really good Star Trek historians, very familiar with it, or they're bringing in uh, storylines from their own uh, work from other comics. I, I don't think he wrote that or one. Or novels. Yeah, I don't think he wrote that one in particular, but he was part of that. It was part of the Lost Era series, mm-hmm. uh, which came out in like 2004, 2005. So, I mean, it was a good 10 years after this comic book was released. So I don't know if when they wrote the novel, they were taking nods from this comic or some oh. other source. But I, I'm just saying, I just liked how that that continuity fit together. I thought it was a yeah. good, nice touch. Cool. But yeah, obviously, yeah. So the book did come out 10 years after this comic did. Ah. So, anyways, like I said, somebody did their homework and and they kept it all in in, in line, which I, I liked. Good. And the the serpents among the ruins was written by a gentleman named David R. George the Third. Cool. That doesn't yeah. sound like a real name. <laughs> I'm sure it is, <laughs> but I just. Anyways, David Ronald George. I mean, you know, too many too many first names. All right, that was all I had. Cool. Okay, so how is this whole thing gonna gonna resolve itself? Well, we're gonna find out in the next issue. This one is actually a next gen issue, annual number six, oddly enough, for nineteen ninety five. And the title of this one is Convergence Part two Future Imperiled. The uh, writer this time is Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Ken Save. Inker is Sam De La Rosa. Colorist is Rick Taylor. Letterer is Chris Ilipolis. Uh, editor is Margaret Clark. The cover shows Spock, Garon, Picard, Riker, Counselor Troy, and a white alien with a hole in his forehead. And a little dragon hand puppet looking creature with little spiky things coming out of him. The main title, Convergence, is at the top of the page. The Enterprise A is zooming across the bottom of the page with the issue subtitled Part 2, Future Imperiled. And of course the white alien with the hole in his forehead is a Davidian. Uh, Although you don't necessarily know that from just looking at the cover. The action, and I do mean action, picks up with Riker in his jammies staring out a window on the Enterprise D and recounting their investigation into Data's abduction so far. The Romulans were top suspects due to proximity to the neutral zone, but recent evidence clears them. Troy comes up behind him in her jammies, and they embrace. She tells him to get back to bed as per Captain's orders. They establish that they are very much an item, as they do a big sloppy kiss before returning to bed. In Picard's office, he is recounting the triolic waves detected when Data was abducted and how they form a trail right back to the Davidian system. As they race to that system, he wonders whether the Davidians took Data across time as well as space. An awesome spread of the Enterprise-D entering orbit around Davidia 4 is presented along with the issue's credits. Really nice artwork. The scene opens on the equally awesome bridge of the Enterprise-D as Picard enters it to take the con from Mr. Eram. Picard contemplates how Guinan's warning that the time stream has been altered means Data probably was taken to another time as well as place by the Davidians. He also conjectures that the effects of the tampering may be all around him. Was he the captain of the Enterprise in the original timeline? Was the Federation any safer from the Romulans? Riker and Troy enter the bridge together, but not in their jammies. Geordi was able to trace the source of the triolic wave to a cave on Davidia 4. Picard forms an away team for immediate transport to that cave to begin the investigation. 
Dr. Crusher joins them on the beam down. And on the way, they discuss if Data was taken to stop whatever his future contributions to history might be. They beam into the cave, followed by their time-traveling equipment, that they form teams to assemble, as they did in the TV episode Time Zero. While assembling their portion of the device, Riker and Troy talk about Troy's concerns that if they restore the timeline, the Davidians have already tampered with what will change. Will they still be together? Will they have ever even met? Riker calms her down, saying that he has faith that they will be together in any time stream. Geordi spouts out a good amount of technobabble that's supposed to explain how this contraption will sweep them to the same point in time and space where Data was taken to. Worf and Dr. Crusher are concerned the Davidians will quite possibly be there waiting for them on the other side. The contraption is fired up, and they step into the brightly lit white vortex that sweeps them away. Meanwhile, at the Davidian prison bubble, Gauron joins the other prisoners and starts a fight with the Romulan. Gauron tells his story how it was the Klingons under his leadership that kept the Romulans from conquering the Federation. They figure the Davidians' objective was to destroy the Federation by removing Gauron. They settle down and all agree on fighting their common enemy, the Davidians. However, they do not know how they will do it, since they are still in their prison and so far have not figured out a way to get out. Spock states he hopes their colleagues will be able to help in that department. In Kirk's time, the Enterprise A arrives at Davidia 4. They enter the same cave as Picard's crew did far in the future. They use Exana's tech to hop the Davidian train to where, when, Spock was taken to. They enter the portal. Picard and company arrive at the strange, dreamlike alien world, complete with creepy mist at waist level. They spot another group of humanoids, not Davidians, just ahead, but somehow dreamlike in appearance. They appear that way because they exist slightly out of phase with the next Janaway team. They decide to follow them at a distance. The other team is Kirk and company, and they eventually become aware that they are being followed. They continue in their direction under Exana's direction, not to make them aware that they are aware of their followers' presence. Kirk and company finally come upon the domed prison. They are barely able to understand each other, the the people inside the prison as well as outside, uh, because they are slightly out of phase with each other. They talk about blasting the dome with their phasers, but before they can do that, they are attacked by the Davidians. A firefight ensues where Chekhov, Scotty, and Uhura are hit. Things look mighty grim until the next-gen away team joins the fight. Troy is hurt in the firefight. The combined Federation teams are able to defeat the last of the attacking Davidians. The prisoners are able to warn them not to fire upon the dome from the outside or they will trigger an implosion that will likely kill all the prisoners. Instead, Exana is able to use her superior tech to transport her gun into the bubble. Data fires from inside and brings down the energy dome. The two Enterprise away teams are slightly out of phase with each other so they cannot talk to each other, but luckily Exana can apparently shift phases and speak to both teams. She will now allow them to talk to each other to protect the timelines but she assures them that both teams are working towards the same goals. Just as they are getting to the part about returning all the prisoners to their own times and places, the Aegis arrive on the scene, telling Exana to stay where she is and do not try to flee. The Aegis are all really tall and scary and impressive looking, but Picard and Kirk defend Exana's actions. The Aegis say to calm down because they have changed their minds and agree with Exana's actions. In fact, they returned Gary Seven to them from the dead. The Aegis say that they went back in time and plucked Gary out of the timeline before that he could be killed by the Davidians. Uh, That whole explanation was really confusing to me. I just got to tell you right now. Moving on. Exana runs to Gary and makes no secret of her love for him. The feeling is apparently mutual as they do some heavy face suck in front of everybody. 
The Aegis say they were wrong to allow the Davidians such latitude, given their time-traveling abilities and their now obvious ruthlessness. They promise they will suppress their adventuring. The Aegis return the prisoners to their time streams, and they return the two Starfleet teams to their eras. On the Enterprise A, they have a Trace Amigos moment on the bridge, with a quick discussion of what it would be like to have the powers of the Aegis to change anything you want. It ends in a good-natured ribbing amongst friends as they streak on to their next adventure. On the Enterprise D, the bridge crew are discussing the Aegis's assurances that they will keep an eye on the Davidians. Picard acknowledges that the Aegis are not all-knowing and the Davidians are deceitful. So he tells Worf to throw a few photon torpedoes into that temporal cave to seal it off, at least sealing off that particular Davidian gateway. A sad Deanna gets the feeling that something was lost in the other timeline, but is not sure what it is. We all know that she and Riker are now back to being just friends. Data ends the issue by observing that Ambassador Spock was a bitchin' guy 70 years ago, as he is in their time. Hear, hear, Mr. Data. Hear, hear. So ends the story. Now, that was actually impressive guy, not bitchin'. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing a little artistic license. Well, I'm just saying uh, Data did not learn how to cuss until Star Trek Generations. What? Bitching? Bitching, man. That's not, is it cussing? Is it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so, but... But anyways, anyway. so, yeah, uh, that that brings up the point that I wanted to make was uh, I think that the timeline for the next generation portion of this is after season seven, but before Star Trek Generations. Would you agree with that time placement? Probably. Um, wasn't the whole Davidian thing season six... Right, but this is obviously later. After that, exactly. Right. So that sets sets the 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 one boundary. Right, and the reason why I say that I think that it comes after Star Trek season seven is that a lot of times in the alternate future, when Riker and and Troy were making out or saying something like, you know, what if in the other future we're not together? It always right. seemed like they panned over to show Worf. At that exact moment, <laughs> which, at, at the end of Star Trek season seven or Star Trek Next Generation season seven, uh, right? You know, it was Worf and Deanna that were together, right? Right. So I'm assuming that's why they kept doing that. And obviously, this this story came out well after Star Trek Generations came out, right? Yeah, I, I think I think so. But it is difficult to read now when you're seeing that alternate reality and they're together and you're like, of course they're together. They get married. What are you you talking about? Oh, right. And you got to put yourself in the mindset. Oh, yeah, this was written before they got married. Exactly. So, yeah, it it, kind of seemed natural given where we left things with with the team uh, in the last movie. Right. Quite true. Quite true. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't consistent. Well, it was consistent for yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. We know ultimately they're going to get together, but not at that particular point in time. Right. Okay, so let me just say, I'm going to jump on this. Jump. So in. I think this was this was I think this was a very good comic, very good story arc, and everything. It's just that the beginning bits were so good, I just expected I don't know, a little something more at the end, and maybe I just get my uh, my expectations built up, you know, too much. Right. As definitely I have commented before about the uh, first several seasons of Doctor Who. <laughs> Where uh, things get built up a lot, but then, you know, the final episode showing the resolution is like, what? Really? Uh. Anyway, so I, I, I just got a few things. Love, love both books, except for these few things. May I? Please. Oh, thank you. The idea that the Aegis did not jump all over the Davidians in the first place is a total mystery to me. I, I really don't get it. I mean, they're out there kidnapping people and stuff. It's like, and and they're going to try to end the Federation. I mean, the brightest ray of good guidance ever to grace the Alpha Quadrant, the Federation. Come on, I don't know. I, I, how can you not? If you're the Aegis, how can you not get involved to stop that? Right. But whatever. It, yeah, their their whole mo in these two books seemed contrary to what we've seen of the Aegis, especially in the last book where, 
you know, it, it was all about they they go out there and try to prevent these disasters from happening. Yet in the in that first book, which which I synopsized, uh, and I didn't mention it, she says that you know the reason why Gary Seven was on his own is because the Aegis would not let him help. Right. Would not let them interfere. In, right. Which I agree with you. Total, total 180 from their normal, uh, their normal <laughs> methods. Yeah, they're messing around with stuff all the time. Anyway, I mean, it wouldn't have much of a story if the all powerful guys, you know, were on board right at the beginning, right. as they should have been. Agreed. But so, having the big Wizard of Oz, Aegis, popping in at the end and restoring Gary Seven, uh, I think I mentioned it a little bit before. Kind of weak, you know. As much as you know, killing him off unexpectedly in the first issue in such a, a decisive, shocking manner, I thought was cool. I mean, that that really got my attention. It's like, what? You can't do that. But then it was like, oh, the just come back, and you know, oh, here, here's Gary. You know, take him back. You know, it's like, ah, I, I just, I just wasn't crazy about that. I mean, I was great to see him back because you know you wanted to see more Gary Seven adventures, but um, I just thought it was a little cheap how they did it. Mm. And the last thing is, what happened to Isis? When Gary was killed, no Isis around, which I thought was odd. I mean, and then, of course, Ixana, uh, you know, where did her cat go to? You know, I, I missed the explanation of where the cats are. But Yeah, I, I agree. Which that last one was really not a big deal. I just kind of wondered. It's kind of curious more than anything. Right, yeah. As opposed to it being something that made it a li- the ending a little less satisfying for me. Well, did you want Isis to die? Then, then the Aegis have to bring Isis back to life too. Well, she would have been in his arms, but being the smart cat she is, I'm sure she would have leapt out of the way. Right. <laughs> this is your thing. They want you, man. I I don't know this guy. <laughs> I don't know this guy. Well, she loves Spock so much, so she would have jumped out of Gary Seven's arms into Spock's, <laughs> and then she would have been captured along with him. Exactly. And it's interesting how these cats, being so fickle, they like to go to the opposite sex Vulcans. Right. All the time. Yeah. I I half expected it to, for one of them to really like Data, too. But. Oh, yeah. But but they never showed that. But that's what what I was half expecting, you know. I was like, okay, so eventually Data's going to get with Isis, and Isis (laughs) is really going to like Data, just like it liked Spock. But. ISIS wasn't even in it. No. No, and he was grabbed before what Exana or whatever came on the, the next gen scene. Right. I I'm just saying that's that was my thoughts before right. I started reading the book. Yeah. And I'm surprised Riker didn't drop kick it cuz he does not like cats. Does he not? I thought he liked Spot. Spot. No, he had to take in that one next gen episode, he had to take care of Spot and he wasn't too crazy about it. Mm. All right. Anything else uh that stuck in your uh my stuck in my craw. Craw. No, that that was mostly it. I mean, there were some other things, but I mean, I, all the lesser char- characters got hit. You know, in the <laughs> in the next gen one, it's like they took out three of them, and they were all the lesser characters. Sure, granted, but I'm kind of surprised they were just stunned. I mean, I assume they were just stunned. I mean, nobody died, right? No, I mean, yeah, they, they Troy got hit in the face, and she didn't, and she was almost bright back up again. Yeah, they all jumped back up when when it was all over. So it was nice of them to, uh, you know, set their Davidian phasers on on stun. Yeah, Gary Seven was the only one they actually killed. Everybody else who got hit jumped back up shortly after. Right. I thought that was kind of odd, but you know, you can't kill them off. Right. So. Yep. So uh, I, I got a question. This is more of a nitpicky hypothetical because obviously this story was written in 1995, mm-hmm. so we don't. At that moment, we did not know what Romulus's ultimate fate fate was going to be, but uh, I'm just curious as to what Data's future contribution to the Romulan Federation relationship was supposed to be. Yeah. So you know, Good since question. we know what ultimately happens to Data, and coincidentally, he does die fighting Shizan, who was the Praetor of Romulus. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you know maybe his death. On she's on ship was supposed to. If it didn't happen, it was going to be like a yesterday's Enterprise thing where the Romulans were going to somehow attack Earth or something. That's an interesting theory. I mean, 
it's it's 100% hypothetical since obviously sure. none of that was written by the time this story was written but uh, just makes you wonder what what the data's future contribution was supposed to be and why the Davidians thought taking him out would help them right obviously somebody had to be grabbed from each uh, federation crew right you know to bring him back so they had to pick somebody and uh, so they picked Data. But what you just, uh, your theory there does, does make sense. Yeah, so maybe somehow with the Romulans, after Shizan's death, pushed for a war and, and then kill Spock, and Spock's not able to create the red matter, and then the, the <laughs> galactic supernova that destroys Romulus ends up destroying the whole Federation. Which, don't even get me started on how there's a such thing as a galactic supernova. Exactly. That, that just wouldn't <laughs> ever happen. Yeah, uh, don't. Yeah, we won't get into that one. Distances are too great in space. Never. Right. I mean, I, I how could, could see, you have that much? Yeah. How could you have that much mass that could spread out over cover that much distance? Well, and Spock out. says it was going to destroy the galaxy. I mean, I could understand the next solar system over. Even that seems like a stretch to me. But yep. Okay, I'll buy it. It was the next solar system over, but nothing would destroy the whole galaxy. But anyways. Right. That was a different movie. The only other comment I have, or actually I have two, Exana, or however you say her name, uh, you notice that she didn't have the screwdriver type thing that, that Gary Seven had. And she had all, a phaser. Well, it looked like a phaser. It looks like a fa- it looks like a next gen phaser. Right. I just thought that a, was a cool one, mind you. It was you know it was like more curved and stuff, but it looked like a next gen phaser. Right, and it was you know it had its own teleportation device built into it and all this other stuff. So right. But I just thought it was odd that she didn't have a, a, a pin or sonic screwdriver, however you want to call it, like, <laughs> like all the other Aegis did in the previous books. Right. Well, Gary, what... Mm, well, no, the other guy what, did, too. Uh, oh, right, name? right. Those rogue guys. Yeah. That's right. Chopin? Uh, it wasn't Chopin, but it was something like... Chopin or Show. Yeah, because Chopin was the uh, piano-playing... Uh, <laughs> uh, classical right, which guy. I thought was weird. Why is a, p- a pianist being the main bad guy in a Star Trek comic? That's <laughs> uh, what I was wondering. I was it was like very... Chopin or something. Yeah, it was something, Chopin something, or something like that. Anyway. Chopin. His name was Chopin. Chopin. There you go. Uh, the last thing I have is I liked how they went to such great effort to not have Kirk and Picard actually interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seemed like they were doing a good job with the, the four people that were in the bubble so that the future versions of themselves didn't give away anything to the past versions. Uh, right. Even until Data shows up, and then Data's like, oh, here's everything I know, past people. Uh, but until that point, they all seemed really careful not to give away too much information, which I liked. And then they had Kirk and Picard not actually getting to talk to each other, which I liked, because the last thing I wanted to see was either of them say, okay, none of this really happened because we're going to go back in time and stop it, or um, we're going to erase your memories. Well, yeah, and they could have erased their memories, too. They do it all the time. I know, I don't uh, like that. The Aegis stuff. I don't like that. And then they they, well, they half-assed did it. They're like, okay, for the mo- most people don't have to have their memories erased because they never actually interact, but only these four people that were in the bubbles will have to have their memories erased. Right. I kind of liked how they went through all the extra effort not to have to do that, and then they ended up having to do it anyways. But anyway. Okay, so so they wiped Data's memory. Data, Spock, Harriman, the Romulan. So how does Data know that Spock was bitching 70 years ago too? Uh, He says that he doesn't remember it. It's just a feeling. Uh, A feeling is a robot. He says, however, there's one thing, an impression really more than a memory. Ah, ah, okay, that's what he said. Okay, so gotcha. it was... Yeah. An impression more than a memory. Right. I mean, it, yeah, that was very... I mean, that was an odd way... I thought that was an odd way to end it. First thing, you're calling into question the memory-wiping abilities of the Aegis and their agents. And... You know, why do such a self-serving, ooh, Spock's a wonderful individual thing at the end? I don't know. Yeah, it's even weird. They couldn't thought of something better? I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And I didn't really like the whole brainwashing thing. I I thought I would have liked it better if the four people that were in there 
we're just having to be really careful not to give away too much information to yeah. the past. Right. Uh, but then, like I said, Data is the only one that really seemed to break that when he was like, well, here's everything I know about my future. Yeah, and... You're, yeah. you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's the future thing that matters. Right. I mean, uh, it, Data knows a little bit more about the past. Well, big stinking deal. Who cares? Well, he knows everything about the past. I mean, he was even... Well, yeah, because he's, he's all programmed In with your it. your future, you're going to be doing this. You're a footnote. Your footnote says you're going to do this. <laughs> I, I, that was kind of funny. But, but yeah, so it's really only the guys that were being returned to the past that could have learned anything that would have been detrimental. Right. So I, I don't know why Data's mind was wiped, but whatever. Yeah, anyways. And the only other thing I had question about is why did they pull Galrod? He really seemed like uh, the odd man in that group. I mean, Well, he was, but I think they made, I think they made it plain, the direct – his direct part in history, or at least the timeline. I mean, it was the Klingons' intervention that stopped the Romulans from, uh, you know, taking over the Federation in his timeline. Right, which is kind of the opposite of what happened on Deep Space Nine during the. Remember, there was, I guess it was season four, that they were really doing the Klingons are going to cause war in the Federation. And the Romulans kind of showed up out of nowhere to kind of help the Federation. And then, oh. then the, everybody got back on the same page. I, I'm assuming that's what they're talking about. Because then the Romulans mm. kind of became this, like, uh, wild card throughout the rest of Deep Space Nine where, you know, every time the Dominion was about to win, a Romulan ship would show up and kind of turn turn the tide in the Federation's favor. Which I liked. I thought that was actually kind of cool. Right, but I'm a... all you Alpha Quadrant folks sticking together. Right. So I'm assuming that's what alternate event that Galron's talking about. It, it's it's kind of odd because in the picture, hmm. it actually shows. And, and I thought it was sea getting yeah. destroyed, which wouldn't make sense because Galron would have been a little baby when that. Well, I think what they were trying to say is because of the other interventions that had gone on already, that the Federation was being attacked by the Romulans for long periods of time and they were wearing down the, fe- the Federation to finally the point in his time frame which is further than Harriman's that they finally were on the bridge of collapsing the brink of collapsing right well I mean he said, at least that's the way I took it but I don't know yeah he said that he was pulled five years after he became Chancellor which right. would have been around the same timeline as you know Deep the, Space Nine the Deep Space Nine stuff yeah could be you are. I did not. I did not get that reference at all. Me not being the Deep Space Nine uh, aficionado as you. Right, but like I said, it's kind of like it's kind of the reverse, and it's uh, and it. Like I said, it didn't really make sense why the Enterprise C or or an Ambassador class ship was the one getting destroyed in in his flashback. Yeah. Right. So it could have just. That is a good point. I mean, I don't know why they used. It's very odd they use an Ambassador class ship in that. I mean, the Romulans did destroy. The Enterprise C, and then that's what caused the Klingons to start siding with the the Federation. But yeah, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. I, I, it could have just been any another Ambassador class ship. It doesn't necessarily have to be the Enterprise C. Indeed. All right, uh, that was my last comment on this book. I, okay. I liked well, it. I have a few. I think it. Oh, I think it. Oh, you had another one. Go ahead. No, go go ahead. Finish. No, Finish I was just I was just agreeing with you that. I think the first story was really good, set it up really good, and then this one just kind of like, yeah, ended. <laughs> <laughs> still good. Oh, it's, it's all good. It's still really good. It just, just not. I just expecting more. Yeah, just I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I just had a few last comments. All right, go ahead. I thought it was odd how Troy on page two, where Troy's hair changed from the normal black in in the one panel to the very next panel being red. When she was doing the big kiss with Riker, uh, so that was either a hell of a kiss or <laughs> it must be some kind of a printing error. Well, when he's having lunch with her in the in the first the first issue, when Troy and yeah, I mean You're Troy right. and Picard, her yeah. hair kept switching. And at first, I thought it was Beverly, and then yeah, that's what I thought too when I first read that about Beverly to her, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, that can't be her. 
But her hair was red there too, so I guess it was just a coloring issue. I think that's yeah. Who's the coloring person on these? I don't. I don't think there's something definitely wrong going on here. I thought Jordy's magic time machine and the accompany techno babble was a bit of a stretch in the Times Arrow episode, as I recall. And it is here too. However, I mean that's that's next gen for you. So you know. I mean, as far as all the series are concerned, I think Next Gen was always the king of techno babble. It's like uh, amongst all the Star Trek series, I think that's where they uh, use techno babble to explain weird situations the most. And this kind of reminded me of that particular uh, characteristic of of Star Trek's tre- Next Gen stories. Yeah, uh, so I kind of like I that. You know, I thought it was uh, cool to see the obscure characters like Harriman, Gowron. And uh, Cybok brought in to all the ser- all, all the different series. I mean, uh, through the different issues. And I thought it was a very poignant ending where they have the uh, Troy and Riker going back to being just friends in the quote correct timeline. So I thought that was right. But we know that won't last very long. Ending. Exactly. We know what happens in the end, but for now it's a little sad. And doesn't Troy look in Zadi look a little sad? At the very end. Well, uh, yeah, and I didn't understand why, because she would be with Worf at this moment. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to feel bad for Worf. Oh, yeah. yeah. But that's okay, because he ends up getting uh, Dax. Oh, but then she dies. Oh, well. Yeah, well, he... Doesn't he marry somebody No. Again? No, I don't... I don't think... Uh... No, he, he gets with the other Dax... Uh, once. Yeah, but that doesn't work that doesn't out. That doesn't work out. And then he's got, and then Skinny Bashir ends off going off with little Dax, and it's like, oh my god. Yeah. It's like, you know, Worf, come on. Oh, you're gonna go for him? <laughs> 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 oh well. Well, he's genetically altered, so. I know he is, but. He's genetically you know. altered to be more appealing to women. <laughs> that must be it. Yeah. That's all I got to say. That's all you got to say. Uh, the only thing, the E just showing up at the end. I don't understand why they have to be giant alien looking. <laughs> they're powerful, man. But they're like 10 feet tall, if not bigger. Yeah. And they have very, very odd, imposing look to them. Yeah, they look like uh, statues. Yeah, they look like, they look like, uh, like rock or something. Uh, or kind of like somewhere between like the big... The big trees in the Lord of the Rings movies and rock. I mean, they just look really tall and menacing and kind of. Right. Yeah. Anyways. And the speech bubbles for them are really menacing looking because they're really thick green lines around the outside of the bubbles and they look really. Oh. Yeah, you, yeah, you can imagine their, their deep baritone gravelly voices. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so, anyways, I think the the good payoff or a, a really nice payoff was the last two page spread uh, where it shows the Enterprise A flying in warp on one page, and then on the other page it's the Enterprise D above Davidian three or whatever it was, and then kind of the epilogue for both storylines kind of follows the same pattern underneath. Uh, I really, I really dug seeing both ships, you know, not really in the same panel, but you know if you're Opposite pages. Yeah, and they're kind of doing the same thing, flying in the same direction. It was kind of like, that's awesome. That's what (laughs) I always wanted to see when I was a kid, see both of those ships together. Uh, I thought that was a cool little visual. Right. So, anyways, good story. Liked it. One of the best ones I think we've read so far. Yep, good stuff. So, next week, we're going to go further into Gary Seven's storyline and start the um, Assignment Earth miniseries. Which... Uh, that's the IDW one? IDW. They came out in, what, 2003, I think it was? Let me look. No, wait, not 2003. And, of course, it's by John Byrne. Yep, John Byrne. Star- Art and story. Yeah, he must really like... Um, Gary 7. I'll get there eventually. Here it is. All right. So, yeah, 2008. Yeah, my graphic novel says 2008. You couldn't have said that instead of having me look? (laughs) 
Well, no, I was just, uh, I had actually spotted it just before you said 2008. Yeah, so I've only read, like, uh, of these five issues, I've read maybe three of them, and, and they're pretty good so far. Yeah, I just finished four yesterday. So. So, looking forward to do the uh, the reviews. All right, so everybody listening, uh, obviously these IDWs are not on the DVD that has every Star Trek comic book ever released. Up to the point that it was produced. Right. The DVD was produced. So everybody needs to run out to their local comic book shop and get the graphic novel or the issues. Right. So until then, uh, any closing words or thoughts or anything? No, except that uh, go Gary. Go, Gary. Go, 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 Gary Gadget, go. And we get Roberta Lincoln again, which is nice. Yeah. So Right. Seeing seeing Gary in the future after she has passed on is a little, little sad. Right. Without his companion. But apparently, he's found a companion peer. Yeah, kind of like how Doctor Who had Ramona for a while. Exactly. And wasn't she hot? She was really cute. Well, well, but there was nothing going on there. Romance-wise. Well, which Romana? Romana 1 or Romana 2? Uh, ooh. Uh, ooh. I think the first one. I mean, yeah, the first one. The first one was only in that one season, the Key of Time season. And then the second one was there for several years after that. And she was a little shorter. Yeah, I think it was the first one. Okay. Yeah, and she was one of the cutest... Most attractive uh, Doctor Who uh, companions. Companions, I think. Gorgeous eyes. Yeah, but the reason why I wanted you to specify because the girl who played Romana Two and Tom Baker got married while they were doing the show. So. Oh, really? So there was some funny business going on. Oh, that's Romana. right. The, the second Romana was kind of a mousy little girl, wasn't she? Yeah, I didn't want to say that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, she was. I mean. <laughs> I'm sure she's listening, uh, but yeah, she was a she was a little skinnier thing. Right? Yeah, she was really now definitely really number one. Small and petite. Yeah, number one. Yeah, you, all the way. I used to know what their names are, but uh, my Doctor Who knowledge has waned a bit. As much as I love the the Tom Baker uh, time period and those episodes, I haven't seen them in so long. Um, I'm a little I'm a little rusty myself. So okay. Anyways. All right. Anyway, till next week. And we'll be seeing you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.